I had a meeting with a friend here at church. Uh, we had a kind of a meeting and appointment and, and I was talking with her and she said, Lance, I had a dream a little while ago, a couple years ago, and it changed my life. She said, I used to be so caught up in so many other things, things of this world, money, I always had to drive the right car. God began to get my attention and I had this dream and there was Jesus. And she said, I've never felt love like that before in my life. And he reached out and he touched me and everything fell away. All my cares, all my concerns, all my fears. She said, I've never really been the same since. See, I believe that's what we must have here. Part of my job as being the shepherd of this church is to try to keep in step with the Spirit and to try to discern what God wants for us. And a lot of that, unfortunately for you, comes through my personal engagement with God. Where is God taking me? What does it seem that we need here? And I think there is something that we are lacking here. Much of what we do here, you can get in the world. For example, you can get teaching in the world of academics. There are those that can teach the Bible in an academic sense better than I. There are motivational speakers that can move you to do things better than I. There are musicians and CDs and concerts that can soothe your busy mind in the world. But what the world cannot provide for you ever is a fresh touch from Jesus Christ. What we need here is not more and better teaching. It's not more and better music. We need God. And I believe that we are being called and drawn towards Him to engage with Him in a deeper fashion. I know that I am being called that way. Is it for everyone? I don't know. But I want this place, and I feel that God would like us to get out of His way so He can show up here in a bit more intense fashion. Because what we truly need is that touch of Jesus when everything else falls away. We are still too caught up in petty materials. But if you get touched by Jesus, everything changes. For me personally, it's, it's been a personal call by God, in my opinion, to be more spiritual. That sounds kind of stupid because I'm a pastor, right? I don't know how you, you know, pretty spiritual, right? Actually, I'm pretty practical. Christianity to me is intensely practical. It's, a, it's right. It's the right thing to believe. It's the right thing to do. It's what makes sense of my world. It's who I love. I love Jesus more than anyone in my life. 
but I'm so practical. I grew up in a experientially based denomination, and when I left that, I'm afraid I went to the other side of the street and stayed there. So afraid of manipulation, so afraid of experientialism, so afraid of things getting out of hand, that I relegated God to the natural. But God is supernatural. So where does that fit in? For me, it's in my personal life to not be just practical, but to be a bit more spiritual. Begin to engage and allow God to operate in ways that I can't control, maintain, organize, reteach. Yeah, I'm a teacher. Everything I want to engage with, I want to be able to reteach and give it back to you in a package. But God, you cannot get your arms around. What we need here is what they had in the tabernacle in the Old Testament. In the Holy of Holies, the Bible says that there in the temple was the intensified presence of God, yes? So much so, it was so intense, especially in that little gold box, the Ark of the Covenant. It was such an intensified presence of God that when the Israelites marched into the Promised Land area and crossed the Jordan River, the Israelites were not allowed to get within 1,000 yards of the Ark. But the New Testament says that we together like living stones, are being built together to become what? A temple for God's presence. The power that dwelt within the ark dwells within your heart. Should this not be a mysterious and awesome place? That is what we need. We need to fall in love with Jesus all over again. We need Him to come and heal us. We need Him to do what the world can never do. You see, I, I was looking through this and I was saying, well, what do I, what do, I do with all this, God? Is it possible that, that you want to visit us on weekends in a different way? Is that, is that what it is? How do we do that? I can't put you in a box. I can't force you to do it. But I believe that it means spending time with God, preparing our hearts, getting ready to hear Him. I think that the responsibility slides back to all of us as a team, as a body, as a family, to be willing for God to walk afresh amongst us. What's it going to look like? I have no idea but we're going to go on that journey together. One of those steps to allow God to move amongst us is coming up on November 15th. I've told you before, healing and worship night. Ever done anything like that? Nope, sure haven't. What do I expect? No idea. What are we going to do? We're going to try to clear away our junk so God can talk to us. That's it. 
we're going to lift up praise to his name and we're going to sit there and bring our request before God and say, Dad, will you do something about this? Is this something in your will that you want to operate in? That's it. Is it going to be flashy and scary? Nope. Not unless God shows up. <laughs> I have an expectation that he will be here. My concern is whether or not I'm going to be in tune enough to figure that one out. Because I'm not too worried about God's presence in our church. God is clearly here. Too many amazing things are going on. There's too much life transformation for God not to be among us, for the Holy Spirit not to be operating. My problem is that I have an awful lot of garbage in the way. So what I'm going to propose to you next week is a plan. A plan by which we prepare our hearts as a family to listen to our dad. So from October 15th to November 15th, we'll have a bit of a plan. If you want to choose to be a part of it, great. If you don't, that's completely your business. No one's going to check up on you. It's going to involve things like fasting once a week. It's going to involve things like putting a moratorium or a fast of sorts from things that you're struggling with. Well, you know it's a gray area and you're fighting with the Lord about it and you know that you could either take it or leave it, but you choose to engage with it because what? Makes you feel better. That stuff is gone for 30 days. What are you going to do without your teddy bear? I have no idea. I don't know what I'm going to do without mine. (laughs) But I believe we need to prepare our hearts for God to show up in a whole different way. I'll bring you that next week. Let me transition with a question for you. What do you think the disciples thought of Jesus? I can tell you some of the things that I think that they thought. I think they knew him as a semi-familiar local guy. Because remember, he grew up in that region. These are all local guys. I think that they knew him to be brilliant yet humble. That they knew him to be loving and compassionate. They knew him to be a healer and a miracle worker. As a matter of fact, they saw many, many sides of Jesus. Some left them confident. Some left them absolutely confused. But he began to say some things that didn't fit in with what they saw. He would drop little hints of him being a warrior. But that is not at all what they saw before them. They saw a suffering servant. And they would have a hard time reconciling with certain things that he said. I need you to take out your Bibles. Can you take out your Bibles? If you don't have a Bible today, can you please just raise your hand and we'll bring one to you? You don't have to get up. You don't have to do anything. We'll bring one to you. The team in the back will keep your hands up until you get one. I'm going to have you turn to a passage in Matthew here in a moment. But I want you to think, what did the disciples think about their close friend Jesus when he said words like this? And you can just listen. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. What do you think they thought when he explained the parable of the weeds like this? The one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. That's him. That was his favorite name for himself. The field is the world and the good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, meaning the end of the world. 
and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man, that's Him, will send out His angels... And they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Do you think that meshed with what they saw day to day? What did they think when he talked about his church like this? On this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. What did they think? Did they think he had the power to do that? What did they think when he talked about his return like this? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels and he will reward each person according to what he has done. Or when he said, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 24, verse 23. And the Bible's handed to you, it's page 701. Matthew 24, 23. When Jesus talked about him coming back with his angels, I would imagine the disciples were a little bit confused. Other than maybe his engagement with the demonic, or maybe his miracles, maybe the time that he cleansed the temple and turned over all the tables and chased everybody out, did they get an inkling that he was a little bit more than the man of many sorrows, meek and gentle? But I don't think they understood him as a warrior. I don't think that meshed at all. But he would say stuff like this, Matthew twenty four twenty three. At that time, he said, meaning at the end of the world. If anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, don't believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. See, I've told you ahead of time, so if anyone tells you, there he is out in the desert, don't go out. Or here he is in the inner rooms, don't believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, the sign of me, he said. The sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And He will send His angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather His elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. Is Jesus a warrior? Yes. Is He a commander of God's army? Yes. Did they know Him as such? No. But he kept talking about this. He kept talking about victory. He kept talking about him being this mighty king of kings. But they saw none of that. He never took over Israel. He never conquered Rome. He never did things that they wanted him to do. But he kept saying, when you see me, I'll almost be unrecognizable. Just wait until I return. Today we get to see that picture. What the disciples long to see. It is a gift given to us in the book of Revelation alone. 
the warrior Jesus. Where God takes John up to heaven and pulls back the curtain and says, you want to see Jesus? Let me let you know what he normally looks like. In all his regalia, in all his war armor, let me show you what he is known as in our eyes in heaven. You see, he, though was equal with God, did not consider equality with God something to be hung on to, but he made himself nothing. Ah, he came down. He, boy, he shielded a lot from you. The angels who know him to be the warrior that he is saw him become a little child. And they thought, what is he doing? Why would he do that? And we only saw him in that fashion. But today we will see him differently. In the book of Revelation, he is revealed back to his rightful place as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What does that mean for us? It's the fill in the blank in front of you. Fill in the blank is this. No enemy can stand against the King of Kings. Do you believe that? then it is the case with what you are facing right now. If it is truly an enemy of God, then it cannot stand before the King of Kings. No enemy can stand against the King of Kings. Victory in Jesus means peace for our lives. Amen? Amen. Would you turn with me to Revelation chapter 19? We are in part 30 of our series as we wrap it up. There's only 22 chapters here. We're going to finish 19 today. So we are cruising towards the end very rapidly. But if you remember, last time I taught you, obviously I was gone last week. The week before that, I taught you that, what? God used the Antichrist, the bad guy, this evil world dictator, kind of ruler guy. He used him to go in and wipe out an evil city that was symbolically named Babylon. We saw that the Antichrist was at the pinnacle of his power. He has his right-hand man, the false prophet, who did all these fake miracles, getting the whole world behind him. He's instituted the mark of the beast where he's running the show, and all the Christians and those that adhere to Jesus Christ are running and hiding and being persecuted, those that are here. And in the midst of all of that, when their time is done, when God no longer has a use for the beast and the false prophet, It's time to get him out of the way. This is what we know as the battle of Armageddon. Let me just read Revelation 19. We're going to read from uh, verse 11 through the end. We'll pray for the word and tear it apart. Ready to go? Here we go. I saw heaven, John said, standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. 
And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, come gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals and mighty men of horses and their riders and the flesh of all people free and slave, small and great. And then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. And the two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest of them were killed with a sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Would you pray with me? King Jesus, we come to you today and ask that we might see you afresh, that this vision of who you are in your glorified state as King of kings and Lord of lords, that that would burn into our minds and we would worship you differently because of what we know. May your strength, may your victory bring us peace and assurance and comfort in our days of sorrow. Many of us, Lord, feel that we are being put down, shoved aside, manipulated and abused. And we cry out for a great deliverer. God, write into our lives and make us new. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. John says, I saw heaven standing open. Now, that's not the first time. As a matter of fact, back at the beginning in chapter 4, verse 1, when John first begins to get this vision, he says, come up here, there's something I want to show you. And he said, I saw a door standing open in heaven. And that was a chance where he got to go into the throne room. John was going in the door. This time, the door is open and someone is coming out of the door. Who's coming out of the door? Why is the door open in heaven? Because there's something we need desperately. There before me was a white horse. Have we ever seen a white horse before in Revelation? Yeah, absolutely. Back in chapter 6, the second seal was what? And a horse rode out. On a, uh, a white horse rode out, bent on conquest, the rider was. Who was that? The Antichrist. Why is he riding on a white horse? Because he wants to look a lot like Jesus. He's a mimic and a mockery and a counterfeit of what? This. Here comes Jesus riding out on his white horse. What does white stand for? But purity and righteousness. Here riding out on a white horse whose rider is called faithful and true. Unlike the Antichrist who made promises and broke promises and deceived people, Jesus is called faithful and true. That means he is loyal and accurate in everything that he does. With justice, he judges and makes war. Is there a lot of war in this world? How much of it is pure? Nothing. It's always with mixed motives, if it's created by man. But when Jesus comes to make a holy war, it is the only one that is truly holy. Yeah? Because he's perfect with justice, this is not about personal vendetta. This is not about personal gain. This is not about, hey, I just feel like doing this and I'm going to push my weight around. This is about righteousness against evil. 
This is about making things right that are wrong. This is about taking territory that needs to be taken by God Almighty. With justice, with perfect balanced scales, with all that is right, He makes war and judges His people in complete accuracy. He says His eyes are like blazing fire. Do you remember when John first got up there to heaven and had this vision? He saw one walking among the lampstands like the Son of Man. His eyes were blazing like fire. What does that mean? What does it mean if your eyes are blazing like fire? It means purity. A penetrating gaze, a gaze of judgment, being able to discern and slice. And I've shared this with you before, but anybody ever had the, uh, the weird feeling that when you hung out with somebody else, they could see inside your soul? Man, that's so uncomfortable. Hate that. I had that just in the last two weeks. I had a meeting where someone was sitting across from me and I was like, what are you looking at? You looking at my soul? Is that what you're doing? It is the most unsettling feeling because you feel like they're looking right through you. And automatically you go, are they, gonna, are they seeing what I can only see? That's the penetrating gaze of God. Where he, with his eyes blazing a fire, looks through and sees the true motives of man. He knows why you're doing it. He knows what you're truly going for. And he sees all of it. Since not only are his eyes blazing of fire, but on his head are many crowns. Why many crowns? Because he's victorious in all things. It says he has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. Now this is a bit comical in my opinion. However, it's likely written on his forehead. How do we know that? Well, a lot of stuff is written on people's foreheads. John sees it right off the bat. So he has a name written on him somewhere. He's wearing a robe, so he knows what's written there. So it's probably on his forehead. But why I think it's funny is it says it's a name that no one knows but he himself. You're like, then why do you have it on there? He's like, what's that say? Something. You're like, well, well, what is it? It's my name. Well, what's your name? Can't tell you. I'd have to kill you. And you're like, well, then why do you have it written right there where I can see it? If it's only known by you. Is it possible that someday when we are in our glorified state, he will share with us what that name is. Is it possible that in our intimacy with God, that that time he'll go, you want to know what it says? Yeah, this is who I am. Oh, no way. Right? Isn't that Jesus? It says what? He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood. Whose blood? Was it his? Isn't that where we immediately go? Jesus died on Calvary, yeah. On the cross, there he shed his blood. His blood, at that time he wasn't wearing anything, remember? But now he has a robe dipped in blood. We immediately get this idea of the cleansing blood that washes us whiter than snow. We immediately get this idea of the communion concept where that wine, that juice, is representative of the blood of the new covenant. And we go, that's Jesus. It's what he died for us. You sure that's the blood on his robe? Why would I ever think that it was something different? Because I went back and began to look at the day of the Lord in the Old Testament, and I read passages like Zechariah 14, Isaiah 63, Joel 2 and 3, and what did I see? A description of Jesus, the mighty Messiah. He says, as I stomp through the winepress of God, and he's saying with his sword in hand, blood will spatter up all over my garments from my enemies. You're like, whoa, is 
Is that the Jesus you're familiar with? Where he's got blood from his enemies all over him as he goes through waging war? Ah, whose blood is that? I don't know. But don't you understand that either way it means victory? Whether it's his on the cross or whether it's his enemies, Jesus wins. Amazing. It says, and his name is the word of God. That is one of the main reasons why everybody ties this John in with the John that wrote the gospel of John. Why? It has the most famous passage. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Now, later on in verse 14, it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We know that to be Jesus. When John, who was Jesus's closest, best earthly friend. Everybody remember that? When he described his best buddy. He said, all I can tell you, he's a logos, the what the logos, the word of God. He is the very creative that comes from God. He is the very tangible God, the visible manifestation of the invisible God. If you want to ask me about my best friend, I can't use words that, you know, I got to use concepts when the second person of the Trinity Moved in creation. It's as if the father spoke and there became word. And that creative element, all things were made through and by Jesus Christ. He said, that's my friend. His name is the word of God. We relegate it to this. A book. You think that Jesus is contained only in these pages? Oh, no. The word is alive and active. It's a person. And he died for you. Amen? It moves on. It says, the armies of heaven. He's not alone. Here comes riding in the great and mighty Jesus. And the armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Who are they? Man, everybody's got a different opinion on this one, right? Who are they? Are they angels? Because a whole bunch of passages say, and Jesus will come riding in on the clouds with his heavenly and mighty angels. So we know that it's possible this is a massive collection of mighty warrior angels riding in to do battle. Why is he riding in to do battle? Because the last time we left off, the enemy was gathering together in the valley of Megiddo to prepare for war, I believe, against Israel. They gather in. They're going to fight against God. They don't know where to fight God. They can't give him a little note and say, I'll meet you behind the school at noon. So what they have to do is go attack what he loves, which is his kids. They sweep in. It says that evil spirits, John said, went out. They look like frogs. They went out from the false prophet, from the beast, from Satan, went out and deceived the world, gathered all these armies and kings to valley, to a valley called Esdralon, the plain there in front of the hill of Megiddo. There they gather for war. Here comes Jesus riding in with this massive army behind him. Of who? Could it be angels? Yes. But when it says that they were in robes that were clean, it gives you an idea that one time they weren't clean. And if you're ever talking about that, you're talking about saints, you're talking about martyrs, you're talking about us. I would suggest to you that it's a mixture. We are part of the army of God. So are the angels. Side by side, shield to shield, we ride in. Powerful scene? Indeed. It says, Out of his mouth, out of Jesus' mouth, comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. That speaks of truth and power. 
He will rule them with an iron scepter. What does that mean? Well, we don't know much about kings today, but I want you to go back old school and think about in the ancient world where there was a lot of kings around and you would notice that they would hold a little stick that was called a scepter. As a matter of fact, some of our ladies are studying Esther. If you remember the story of Esther, it was the idea that if the king wanted you to live, he would point his scepter at you and give you freedom. That scepter was a symbol of his rule. If you had a scepter, you could go speak on his behalf. But that was a symbol of all of his authority. This one's iron. What do we know about iron? Nothing but that it's strong. That's it. That's all we know. Is there any bending of his will? No. Is there any way to maneuver and try to pull one over on him? No. Iron scepter. Clang when he puts it down. Rigid, solid, true. Praise God he is good. Yeah? Because that's a powerful rule. With an iron scepter, he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. What's that mean? It means he's squishing the grapes. What's a wine press? Remember? It's a wine, it's a wine vat. You squish all the grapes down. What's he squishing this time? Enemies? No wonder blood's all over him. He's crushing down his enemies below him. Was it not prophesied that his father would put all of his enemies underneath his feet? There he crushes them down as the blood spatters up. Is this the Jesus you know? How do you do with that? You okay with that? It splatters up on him as the fury of God through the person of Jesus is carried out upon his enemies. And the blood runs down to the trough that it might be useful. Hmm. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. In my opinion, that's the highest title he ever got. Amazing. So what does it mean when it's written on his thigh and on his robe? I always try to visualize this stuff, and I have a hard time visualizing that. Is it like it's written on there, and then like, oh, shoot, sorry, I wrote on your leg because I thought I was writing on your robe, and then I, I got a little bit on you. What does it mean? How did they get it on his thigh, right? Either I got three options for you, right, because I'm back. Russ isn't here. I got options. All right. He may be loyal. I got options. Here we go. He has a robe, and on his robe is written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So the first thing it could be is that the portion, as he's sitting up on a horse, the portion of his robe that goes over his thigh, there on the robe, over his thigh, is written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Is that what he meant? Or does it mean like some guys would have uh, a sheath um, strapped to their thigh where they could slide their sword in, and right there on the sheath is written King of Kings and Lord of Lords? Is that what it means? Or is it literally written on his thigh like when they would carve a statue, a masterpiece in the ancient world, many of the artists would sign their name on the thigh of the statue. They say, you want to know what you're looking at? You want to know the masterpiece? It's King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Either way, he's victorious. So let me ask you a question. How's your worship going to change because of what you just heard? We talked a while back that every one of us has a new song every time we engage with Jesus differently. Is this old hat to you? Did you know all this? Is this the Jesus that you think about all the time? When you pray, do you picture this guy? 
Because I'll tell you, the disciples, even John, must have been absolutely astounded. As a matter of fact, he was so unlike the Jesus that he hung out with, is he would say, I saw one among the lampstands. He looked like the Son of Man. In other words, man, I think that's my friend. But boy, does he look marvelous. See, that Jesus hanging on the cross looks a lot different. When he comes off the cross and gets up on top of the stallion and begins to ride into warfare. Now all the angels go, that's my man right there. Look at that. Yeah, go get him. Right? Immediately, he's back. Let's go. And all the angels rise up. It's wartime. And they go out and ride. How amazing is that picture? Is that what you pray? When you picture and praise Christ for who he is, are you only praising the suffering servant or are you also praising the warrior king of kings? We have a new song to sing. Yeah? And I saw, John said, an angel standing in the sun. Now that either means he's standing in front of it and it looked like he's in the sun or he's in there. It doesn't matter. I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried out in a loud voice that all may hear to all the birds flying in midair, come gather together for the great supper of God. All right, this is the second big feast we've heard about. The last one was called the wedding supper of the lamb. Remember the wedding feast of the lamb? This is not that. This is called the great supper of God. All right, this is one you don't want an invitation to. The other one, yes. This one, no. Remember, it's really funny because you think about it. When someone says to you, hey, I'd love to have you for dinner, it all depends on what they mean. (laughs) Right? It's either an invitation or a threat. Okay, here, you don't want to go to this dinner. This is the great supper of God. This is where God goes, I got something cooking tonight. Hey, birds, come here. I made something for you. It's called my enemies. Just like that. Wow. How do you feel about God warring with people? Who's he crushing? Is it just Satan? No. Is it just demons? No. It's people. You all right with that? You wrestling with that? God crushing people. Creator crushing creation. Does that mess with your head at all? Why would he do such a thing? Because I think that in some ways we do not understand what God has made within us. In some ways, we look at ourselves far too cocky in the wrong ways. Where we think that we're a big deal and we can tell God what to do. But in other ways, we demean what God has created. Do you understand that in our minds, we can ally ourselves with the great old serpent? That in our minds, we can become one with what Satan has going on. We can fuse together, just as we fuse together with Christ, we can fuse together with the demonic. That in our minds and our hearts, we can give all of our allegiance to the enemy of God. We can unite and become one with him. That, remember, the Bible says that the lake of fire was designed for who? The devil and his angels. It was not designed for people. But when you ally yourself with the enemy and you follow him, you're going to follow him all the way. Does that make sense? The power of what you adhere to in your heart is extraordinary. 
C.S. Lewis says that when we violate God and go with the enemy, we have committed what is considered cosmic treason. That we have now cast in our chips with that which is evil. If you are united to the enemy, you will get what the enemy gets. Because you're no longer human. You're of your father, the devil, Jesus said. Then I saw the beast, which is the Antichrist, John says. And the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on his horse and on his army there in the valley of Megiddo. But the beast was captured, no details. And with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. Remember, that's his right-hand religious man. The one that gets everybody fired up because he can do all kinds of cool miracles. With these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast, 666, and worshipped his image. And the two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. What in the world is that? That's the second death. I thought everyone was going to die in... I thought we were all going to burn in hell forever, right? Where, where do we get this lake of fire thing? Depends on how you want to look at it. Currently... There is a holding cell for that which is evil, the non-believing, the enemies of God. As they die, they are put into a holding cell, which we know as Hades. Now, either you can say that Hades is hell, which is what I view, or you can say Hades is Hades and hell is the lake of fire. Whatever, you want to, whatever game you want to play with the words, here's how it goes. God is going to take that holding cell and throw the whole thing into the lake of fire. So where is the eternal resting place? Lake of fire. We think all the time of this idea that, ooh, there's a hell, and Satan's down there with his pitchfork, and he's hanging out, and he's running the show, and he's playing music. Okay, no. Satan's never been to hell. You understand what I'm saying? He's never been there, and he's not too excited about going there. That is a place of torment. Who is it built for? Him and those that would follow him. All will be cast. These two guys, pluck, pluck, throws them right into the lake of fire. Were they dead? What does it say about annihilation? Nothing. It says they were thrown alive into the lake of fire. The rest of them, meaning the armies that were behind them, not all the people of the world, just the armies that were fighting at that moment, the rest of them were killed with a sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. What a gross picture. A bunch of vultures just picking at the dead, right? We learned earlier that when this day comes, the blood will flow up to the level of a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. How far is that? 180 miles. That's a lot of blood. The bird's like, oh, I could not eat another bite. <laughs> right? No, 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 you take it, you take it, you take it. Right? You going to eat this leg? No, I'm good. I'm good. Save me a thigh. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Next week, Satan's bound for a thousand years. Clunk, right into the abyss. Lock. I'll let you out when I'm ready. Let you out. Oh, look, you're running around being bad guy. Up, oh, flick into the lake of fire. Just like that. Absolute victory. 
Let me have the worship team come on up and close us out. What does this mean? Here's something that I noticed right off the bat. What an anticlimactic ending. This is the great battle of Armageddon? Come on, really? So they all got ready. Everyone lined up. And then the beast was captured and he was thrown away. And you're like, what? That's it? That's all you got? Come on, I want some details. I want to know, how did it go? Was it this big battle? Was it the whole thing where like in every movie, the big dog fights the big dog and they throw down their swords and they start fighting it out? Isn't that what happened? No. There is no fight. Jesus showed up. Hi, I'm here. You're done. Woo! Throws him over. We get so caught up in this battle concept. Oh, there's a great war going on. Not really. Jesus shows up and goes, you're no longer useful to me. Bye-bye. That's it. Flick. All done. There's no fighting back. There's no, and it was a tough one. Nope. You're just done. That is the God we serve. Jesus is so mighty, so powerful, that with just a word, his enemies cease to exist. So what do we do with that? I would suggest to you that it means we rest easy. I would suggest to you that it means we praise more. I would suggest that you look at the challenges of your life a little differently. There is no great battle. That was won on the cross. Everything else is clean up. And when Jesus rides in, may his enemies shake. Because there isn't going to be a fight. They're dispatched in an instant. You've got to be pretty tough to not have to fight at all.